This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Talking Dirty over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, kind of going full camouflage with his blue and white china behind him in his very decorative t-shirt. We have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. And on this hot and sultry morning over in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen in that direction, I believe. We're actually we're both, both in the same village, of course. We are. I mean, I might as well have just recorded this with Joe Sharman. Our, our I, could, I, I, could have, I, I could have just come to your house and yeah. <laughs> Of Monk Silver Nursery. Five minute drive from my house. In fact, I took a little sneaky trip there this morning ahead of the podcast. So I've had a preview of some of the amazing plants we're going to be talking about today. But before we get on to those, I think I am melting. Between the last podcast we recorded with Darcy and Everest, um, with Luke Whiting, and today, hasn't the temperature changed, Alan? It's like a completely <laughs> different country. It is. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, this is what, quintessentially the English summertime. Um, we had a lovely um, drop of rain last week, and uh, now I have to say parts of the garden probably look as if they need it again. But it's like being on holiday here today because we have a class from the local school of children coming in. And I do think this is, um, this is one of my little sort of things. I think that, you know, if you can encourage children to, A, to just come and enjoy being in a garden and learn about flowers, plants, wildlife in general, we're doing a little bit of good. And I think that one of the things I've always said about the garden here is that when I'm long gone, it'd be nice if it could be some form of um, educational um, exercise with, with people learning about plants, flowers, horticulture, and, you know, just the general nice way of using our world. Mm. Uh, Joe, obviously you've been into plants since you were small. Well, uh, I started when I was about four. I was uh, encouraged by my grandmother and one of my aunts on different sides of the family. And I can remember gardening from a very early age and being interested and deadheading the flowers and then uh, we used to go and stay with these relatives for two weeks every year. And then when I came back, uh, I kind of took over an area of the garden, at, you know, the bottom of our garden, which is quite a big garden and not very well looked after. Mm -hmm. And even at the age of four, five and six, I was actually starting to, to garden. And I can remember, I don't know, didn't know the names of any of the plants, but I can certainly remember the plants that I grew. And now, of course, I have names for them. <laughs> and um, people were very generous. Mostly they were giving away the things that they had too much of or that were, you know, weeds, basically. But, you know, when they saw somebody who was keen, I think this is a, we, Thordis and I have been talking about this a little bit. It's, it's having a little spark, but then having the people around you who then fan that spark by giving you stuff and encouraging you. It, it's... The spark could be there often, but it's got to be fanned by somebody, which is, you know, where I was going when I was talking to Thordis about this, is how do we get that spark fanned? How do we get the people who are beginning an interest to move in and become far more interested? So, you know, I'd like to know from Alan, what got you into gardening as opposed to any other thing? You know, can you actually remember? Exactly. It was just like you. It was, it was uh, one of my... My maternal grandmother, in actual fact, that really got me into gardening. 
Um, and she was very indulgent because my mother and my father, they were both the youngest of their siblings. And so the, my sets of grandparents were both quite old, quite a lot older than, than perhaps um, lots of other people's, but they had this wonderful gift of patience and they had a lifelong um, experience. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that they were clever. I don't think they were clever, but they just knew they, they were countrywise. They knew what to do, why you did it and how you did it. And that instilled in me. I mean, my if I think back to my grandmother, in actual fact, this is going to bring me onto a flomo, really. But I mean, I, I won't. I just skirt around it. But I think back to my grandmother, um, Ethel Elizabeth Lightning, as she was in her maiden name. She um, she actually grew old-fashioned pelargoniums, zonal pelargoniums, and a few regals as well. Yeah. Um, Epiphyllum cacti as well, and she did this all in her. It was quite a large cottage. It had been two and it was not together. She did it all in her cottage without central heating and, and a glass house without any form of heating at all. And it was all sort of everything was, they used everything. Everything was utilised. I mean, the plants in the greenhouse were covered with newspaper on cold nights, um, which sometimes stayed in place for days during dark winter days and things like that. Um, not always was it successful. And I do remember my other grandmother, uh, Bessie Gray, um, Bessie was improvising a fuchsia outside the front door of her house in Tackleston. Um, and I think it was, um, the name escapes me, I can't remember. But anyway, she improvised Keeping It Alive by Lena. It was a variety called Lena, which is sort of a pale, creamy outside with a frilly purple skirt. And um, she made a frame by knocking the bottom out of a wooden box and putting a pane of glass above it. And she stuffed this whole thing with straw and hay or whatever they had to insulate the, the um, can you hear my cat? I'm, I, I can, oh, yeah, but don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> it's a demanding cat, sorry. Um, and you know, it was things like that that I, I remember. And I remember my one of my grandmothers wanting to dig up um, a box hedge. And I said, no, no, please keep it, which she did in the end. But to her, it was an anathema because it was just full of slugs and snails that ate her plants. Which, of course, is quite yeah, true. Certainly snails. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to guess that you then moved away from gardening and did all sorts of other things and then came back to it later. Yes. Or was it something that you kept? Yeah. So you, you didn't keep it going all the time. You, no, no, you no. Then... I think teenage years interfered with that. There was too much, yeah. too, many, too many hormones flying around, I think. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I can't even imagine hormonal teenage Alan. <laughs> you wouldn't want to, probably. <laughs> this happens quite often that pe people have um, they have something when they're young and it kind of gets shelved and then they pick it up again later. And this is why, to me, it's such a tragedy that young people don't have hobbies anymore, because most people who have hobbies as a child, you know, often it all gets dropped and then they pick it up again later. And we're now moving into a time when children just don't seem to have hobbies in the same way. So when they get older, there's nothing for them to pick back up. Do you see what I mean? Whereas Alan yeah, clearly yeah. picked it back up. I, I never dropped it, but for this, well, I was just thinking over my because I obviously some people they have a, a love at first sight thing, and for other people it's a, a slower burn. And I think for me, my mum was always gardening, and we didn't have any money, so she was always propagating off the plants she had. So she was always doing loads of hebe cuttings and loads of fuchsia cuttings and things. Um, 
And I remember loving being in the garden and I got very excited when I would discover what the Latin name for a plant was. And I think I only knew Lavendula. <laughs> I used to very proudly say that. And I was obsessed with a herb book we had, which had all of the different you know, um, common names of plants and all of the kind of medicinal uses. And I used to pour over that, but I never kind of gardened. And actually I was a really indoorsy child and I just read all the time. My mum always used to say it was like I had a book on the end of my nose. So I was really bookish and not very outdoorsy at all. And then it was actually probably working with Alan and um, and my first proper BBC gig was answering the phones to all the listeners calling into Radio Norfolk's garden party. And they'd ask me to put a question in about a plant I'd never heard of. And I'd be Googling away and the gardens would be talking about different mascaris or hydrangeas or whatever it was. And I'd be Google image, image searching them. Went to the garden center with my mum one day because I was a lot younger then and uh, just had an epiphany of like oh these are the plants that I've been looking up and that they've been talking about this is amazing and it sort of snowballed from there and I spent more time with Alan and I presented the garden party and it, it kind of grew and grew and now I'm entirely obsessed but I think for young people all can't be lost because there will always be people who just discover a love of gardening on their own, particularly with well, I'm, I'm finding I mean you know I, I think I said to you when I did events uh, last weekend and um, on the bank holiday weekend, in fact. And there were people who were, you know, sort of in their 20s who were just getting into gardening. And they, they were lots, quite a lot of them were into houseplants, but that's, you know, it's a start. Mm -hmm. And then there was certainly one girl who was, you know, buying more interesting and serious stuff. And she was really, really young. So there, there, there are young people coming through, but it's just, it's just finding them and encouraging them. I can remember when I was, um, I would say I was kind of discovered by, uh, plantsmen and then once I'd been discovered they realized I had a talent for remembering names and things and then they took me to every garden every nursery every plants person they could possibly manage this was in my early 20s so I was taken everywhere and I, I have always tried to do that for other people I've always tried to say well you go here you go there I'm always for instance I'm always telling people to go to see Alan's garden <laughs> and um, you know a lot of the times these people don't know, they don't know where to go. And so if you can actually encourage them by saying, well, you can go here or you can go there, or you can get them a personal invitation to go somewhere. Uh, you know, it just, it's just, again, it's like fanning that flame. It's trying to, trying to get them to become more interested. Alan, what do you think about Well, I think that's a inter very interesting point. The other day, um, a, a very young family, the man was pushing pushchair, the lady was pregnant, and they had a little baby in the pushchair as well. Um, they were, he was terribly interested in, in various plants, mainly um, exotic looking, tropical, shall we say, big leaves, that kind of thing. Big leaves, lots of spikes, um, unusual looking things. And he just mentioned one thing, and it was Cerinthia major purpurescence, which I was cheekily referred to as the Greek weed, because I think probably that's what it is. Well, if you see it in the wild, if you see it in the wild, you just get acres of it. So yes, indeed, it is a weed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, one man's meat is another man's poison, so over here it's not such a weed. Um, but, um, you know, he, we led on to other things and we had, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes maybe talking about various plants that he liked. Um, and throughout that conversation, there was the, uh, there was me being in the the instructor, if you like, to him to say, well, yeah, but have you tried this? And would you like to do you like that? And, you know, it's just broadening that horizon. But such was the effect that we had that day, him and I connecting over plants, that him and his wife or his partner went to the 
um, kiosk on the way out and said, could we exchange our ticket for today for a season ticket, please? Um, and we'd like to come back several more times throughout the season. And I think that's one of the good things. And I've got to the stage now where um, when I'm gardening in on garden open days, and I do like to be out in the garden, I, I enjoy doing it more than looking at it, to be quite honest. Um, and I think, you know, people... I, will, I know will come up and talk to me and ask me this and that. Sometimes it's just a fleeting thing. Do you know the name of this? So they can go home and say, I spoke to him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but at other times, it's, it's something in a little bit more depth. And so, you know, you, you know that, that perhaps you're going to be encouraging people. Um, and for that, I feel thankful. And I do think for younger gardeners who get into it on their own, the missing link sometimes is having that person to ask questions of because you can learn by experience. But I think so many of us, when we start, we expect to succeed way more than we're going to. And we think that all the real gardeners are having endless successes. And obviously you have more success as you go on, but we're always killing things, like no matter uh, how yes. much experience you've got. When I, when I look, when I lecture, I always say to people, I've killed more plants in my life than you'll ever kill in yours. <laughs> because you do. You just 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 you just kill things and it's just just it's just part of it. But you just have to learn to kill slightly less things. The missing link with me that, that actually made me probably more interested in gardening after the influence of the grandparents and things was there was a lady in our village called Mrs. Hardestin. And when it was my birthday, she gave me an encyclopedia of garden plants. And I can't tell you anything more than that. But that book got read from cover to cover. And there, there were no photographs in it. There were line drawings. Um, and I can't remember anything more about it than that. But I did read it more than once, shall we say. And it introduced me to new names, most of which I probably pronounced quite ridiculously wrongly. Um, <laughs> which reminds me of the lady that came to the garden. She said, Have you got any abutilans? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I just couldn't think. And then I said, abutilon. And she went, brilliant, Scarlet, from oh. the neck up. And I said, I didn't mean to make you feel but embarrassed. I, I think, you know, even quite experienced people sometimes get things wrong. And I, um, oh, I'm, not gonna say who, I'm not going to say who this was, but, but Latin, Latin, I mean, I've obviously learned Latin as I've gone. And there's lots of things where where we 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 English just say it completely wrong, um, but you know I, I caught somebody saying nudipes when they were, were trying to say nudipes, because the thing is in Latin in Latin all of the um, all of the vowels are pronounced, so every vowel is pronounced and given equal stress. But we always change things when we give stress in the wrong places. And I won't embarrass you with a whole load of rude names that get one translated from one country to another. Um, Shall we say Alan's got a lot of them planted around his garden and they have cones on. But if you say that on the, on the continent, you have to be careful how you say that. Uh, because they say it in a completely different way, of course. And they always you say, say that they're right. And I say pinus. <laughs> exactly, yeah. A lot of us have fallen foul of P-I-N-U-S. <laughs> you know, we, all, we, all we all get these things wrong. So, as, long as, we, as long as we agree enough that we know what we're talking about. Well, but some people... This is the thing. It's all about communication, as long as we can figure it out. And I do remember reading <laughs> once about, not about gardening, but about words in general. Never laugh at how somebody says a word if they say it wrong, in inverted commas, because they've probably learned it from reading. And that's the thing. Like, so often with gardening, you might learn about something by reading yeah. a book or an article. You're not hearing I, anybody say it, and it's Latin. So how are you ever going to figure out what the kind of accepted way of saying it is? I have a question for Joe. I want to know if he's got any cardamines. <laughs> Cardamines. <laughs> yes, you see. 
Yeah, I'd say cardamine. Yeah, well, there's a plant called Damcanthamnus. You know, so you, you can actually say the old swear words just by using Latin. And if you really go into, if you study your um, Linnaeus, Linnaeus actually had quite a dirty mind because a lot of his plants are named for really quite embarrassing bits of the human body. Um, uh, and if you do enough research, I'm not going to say them now, but I think Alan knows some of them. Um, <laughs> he, he had a filthy mind, Linnaeus, or let's say he was open-minded. So... Um, there's a, you know, anyway, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> there's a rabbit so, hole we could go down. <laughs> there's a rabbit hole we could go down, indeed. But, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't ashamed, obviously, because he, he named all sorts of things with, with quite dirty names. But you have to know the Latin to know, you have to know the Latin to know how rude it is. <laughs> I do think, before we kind of leave the topic of, of helping to spark this this enthusiasm and this passion in people I, I I feel hopeful that even if you have a missing link and you don't have people to inspire you the online gardening community is a really exciting place and I think increasingly people are also admitting to their failures you might have to go into their Instagram stories rather than their beautiful perfect Instagram feed but I think there, there are lots of new growers who are keen to share what they're learning, kind of as they're learning it. I know it's great to get advice from people who have been doing it for 30, 40 years, but also the people who are saying, oh, I thought that I could plant this shallow and it would still grow, or I thought you would need to water it once a week or whatever. Sharing their yeah, own I mean, faith I mean, happening. Yeah. I mean, even, even now, you know, I, I still am constantly experimenting. You know, I'll try and do something in a different way because the books say do it this way, and I'll just try and do it a different way. And you're just always experimenting. And eventually you learn what works best. And so, for instance, let's just say something as simple as root cuttings. If you read all the books, they say do it in the autumn, do it in um, you know, September, October, November. And much experimenting told me that actually this was complete rubbish. And the best time to do root cuttings is when the plants are actively growing. And the, the, the way to think about it is to actually just look at what plants do. So let's say you cut the top of a dandelion in June, that dandelion is going to be back in two weeks. But if you cut the top of a dandelion in November, um, it's going to wait until March, April to come through. So you want to propagate things from root cuttings when they're really actively growing. So now is a really, really good time. And I know this sounds cruel that you have to dig something up and cut all its roots off. But you know, when you've learned that that's the best time to do it, that's what you have to do. But you can only do that by experimenting. And uh, I mean, we're going to get onto some plants in a minute. And, um, you know, some of the ones I've learned to propagate is, again, only by experimenting. You have to experiment and you have to, you know, you can just accept it and leave it and just say, OK, well, we'll let it do its own thing slowly. Or you can say, right, how can I speed this up? How can I uh, experiment and, and try and learn to do this a better way? And it might be that the way I've learned to do it works for me, but wouldn't work for somebody else. But at least I can share the knowledge of what I've, what I've learned how to do. I think the, this is the other reason why going and looking at plants in the wild is so critical as well, because as a, as a horticulturalist, you know, you, you, you get this received wisdom. So you get this geranium silus theme and must have hot, dry, sunny. Uh, and then you go and look at it in the wild and it's growing in damp, wet meadows. And then you say gladiolus, you know, certain gladioli must have really hot, dry, sunny. Again, you look at them in the wild, they're growing in damp meadows. And so you, 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 you look at them in the wild and it teaches you much, much better how to grow these things. So there's certain things I've become a lot more confident about after seeing 
you know, how they do in the wild. And I've always shied away from certain plants thinking, oh, they're really difficult. And then you look at what they do in the wild and you think, oh, I can reproduce that condition. I can, I can manage that. Um, and so, you know, this is why I think it's, it's good for people to get out and just look and see what does. And people always say, oh, I can't grow anything in my garden. So, well, just walk down the street. Are there any weeds down the street? <laughs> yes, there are. Then, then don't tell me you can't grow anything in your garden. You just have to find those plants that will do in your garden. And it's, yeah. it's about, you know, as you were saying, experiment. And right plant, right place. Um, and, yeah. and also, I mean, there is, a, there is a provenance thing as well of where your plants come from, because I remember years ago really wanting some, um, some of those lovely sort of drumstick primulas. And I can't for the life of me remember which of those I bought. Um, but I got mine, I, I specifically made a bog garden to put them in, but I bought them from someone who'd done specific breeding to make them less... I bought my plants from someone who wanted them to grow in a normal garden condition. So mine died. If I'd gone to the right place to buy them where they'd been bred for the damp, then I would have had more success. So there is a, you know, there's lots of things to consider, but basically experiment, expect some failure and be comfortable with that. And then your gardening will just be. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 only, the only problem with the experimenting and failing is that, you know, as you probably realise, when you go to a big branded garden centre, the price of failure actually gets quite high. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you could you can spend a lot of money. And this is why I think people get nervous about plants that, that fail, because they, they, you know, for me and probably for Alan, I would say when I was younger, the majority of my plants came via friends or gifts or, or me just going, seeing somebody in some, I saw a plant in somebody's garden, you go and knock on the door and you ask, is it possible? And nine times out of 10, they say yes. So a lot of my collection came that way. So I didn't actually spend a lot of money the beginning whereas people who are just coming into it completely new um could spend and lose quite a lot of money just through lack of experience I do, so you know you yeah. can see why some people would be more more worried uh, about you know experimenting with that but um anyway go on nurseries obviously generally cheaper than big branded garden centers and growing from seed i think if you're new to gardening growing from seed is a, a much i mean that's that's how i've grown all kinds of things and killed all kinds of things and had them beaten by slugs etc but it's a great way of, of trying for like two pounds fifty to grow something that you might have to buy for eight pounds at a garden center yeah yeah the other, the, other, the other point of view of course is that once you've started and had some success with well, let's take a couple of plants, aquilegias and um, foxgloves, for instance. Um, those plants produce copious quantities of seed. They also um, cross with each other, they, and they seed around incontinently. If you take advantage of that, I mean, you can dig up those seedlings and either pot them or put, prick them out into boxes or something. You you can have, I don't know, a hundred plants for, for no no really no effort. And certainly no expenditure. Yeah, exactly, exactly, but it's, it's, it's getting to the point where you know you can do that. And I think some people who start out don't, don't understand enough to know that they can do that. And you and I know that perfectly well. But, you know, there yeah. are people who are just beginning who, who I can see them walk up and down my stand and they're trying to decide which one are they going to have. And you can see that kind of slight nervousness. So oh, I had one of those before and I killed it. Mm -hmm. You know, so... Um, Getting people to be more confident about uh, buying stuff and trying stuff. And I think this is where a lot of people, especially when they're starting, have this lack of confidence about um, what they're doing. And, you know, sometimes if you see me when I'm propagating plants, I can look really, really rough. And I break things up and I chop them up with an axe. I cut them with a saw. 
and it looks really, really brutal. But because I know what the limits of the plants are, I know how how hard to be, how mean to be, how you know what I can do and what I can't do. But I've got complete confidence in that because I've been doing it for so long. But you know, somebody seeing me um, just chopping something up with an axe, um, or or um, peonies are notoriously difficult to propagate. And I worked at a nursery once where they were carefully kind of getting them out of the pots and carefully picking them apart and trying to put the knife in the right place and do this and do that. And I just got fed up with this. I said, do you want me to show you the quick way of dividing a peony? So I just got the peony out of its pot and I just smashed it on the floor and it broke into dozens of pieces. But of course, but because, because the plant has got these little fault lines in it, it broke in all the right places. So by the time I picked it up again, it was actually broken in all the right places to um, become each piece was a plant on its own. And um, it's just having the confidence to do that, to know that the plant, the plant knows where its fault lines are. It knows where it wants to break. It knows where it wants to go. And half the battle with dividing stuff, half the stuff with battle with dividing stuff is you'll watch me and I'll kind of feel, I'm feeling, I'm not actually doing anything. I'm feeling where that plant is going to go. And once I've found where that break point is in the plant, then I go. But this is is understanding, you know, where to where to, to to do what. Again, that's that's years of experience. I think an awful lot can be gained as well from from visiting other gardens. I think um, this is where I'm going to put my national garden scheme hat on because yeah, most. Most, most National Garden Scheme gardeners are amateurs. They're not probably professional people. Um, and they've, if they've got a garden that looks nice and is good enough to open the National Garden Scheme, then you can bet they've been doing it long enough to know how to do various bits and pieces of gardening. If they're opening their garden, you can do two things. You can go along, you can give your money to them, which will in turn go to a very worthwhile charity. But they are there and they are there to be talked to, to be learned from as well as their garden. So, you know, just encourage people to, I think, to visit more and more gardens. It is amazing that we've talked for, I don't even know how long, and we haven't actually looked at a single plant yet. And I already know that you've got some amazing things to show us, Joe. So we better crack on with uh, a spot of show and tell. Okay. So some of the plants I've got are related to some of the things we were talking about earlier on. So <laughs> the first one I've got here, which I'm going to wave in front of you, is... Primula denticulata, which is your damp-loving primula. Yeah. But it's a variegated form called carrion. Oh. And carrion was produced by Blooms of Bressingham sometime in the 1980s. And they managed to get huge numbers of it. In their usual way, they sold hundreds of thousands. And then it almost entirely completely disappeared and went down to just a very, very few plantsmen. And I can remember it, you know, really being looked after with great difficulty by a really few plantsmen. And then it managed to get eventually to uh, somebody like me, who was then going to really experiment and learn how to grow it again. And so then I experiment and experiment, I managed to get one and learn how to grow it properly. And then I can make it available again. And so um, you know, it may not be available through big commercial nurseries, but it is available through me. But if you look very carefully, you can see it's got about four crowns on it. So your conventional wisdom would be that you divide each one of these plants into four and you start at the beginning of the year and you end up with four. And I thought, well, I need to learn how to do this a little bit differently. So what I did was, um, so that's, that's the crown of the plant, that's a circle. So I thought, well, I just cut it into two and see what happens. So I cut it in half. 
down the middle and uh, I realized that each half would grow independently. So then I thought, well, why don't I cut it um, again? So the next time I cut it into four. And then I thought, well, why don't I cut it into six or eight? And so long as each piece, as long as it's got a root and a leaf, will then make a new plant. So if, instead, instead of having one crown and having to wait until it became four like this and split it, I could then get one crown into eight pieces in a single year. And I did this, I did this when the plant was growing really strongly, so it's growing quickly and fast. With a variegated plant like this, if you uh, that comes from this comes from root cuttings. So if you break a root, the new shoot will be green. So you do have to keep a little eye. So when you're when you're cutting the roots out, you have to make sure there's no loose root. So the root is definitely connected to the top, and you may need to take the odd little green piece out. But instead of so I, I learned how to do it really really much much faster, and then of course you start experimenting and think, well, can I use that trick on something else? So any pl any plant that's got this big crown, is it possible that I can just cut it into pieces? And some do, and some don't. You know, so so now, uh, so this is uh, Primula denticulata carrion. Uh, we make it available. I presume lots of other people do too. And I may not be the only person who's who's got it or kept it alive or or selling it, but um, I don't see very many for sale anywhere. So that's the sort of thing. Then I've got a plant that we now know that Alan hates, uh, which is a verbascum. Uh, I only see it in sections, I'm afraid. Anyway, <laughs> so this is Vabascum creticum. So it's an annual, relatively short, semi-shrubby sometimes. So actually, uh, if you cut the top down, it will sprout another branch and grow again. And in fact, you, you can end up having uh, a plant that lives for three or four years, just con constantly producing new shoots. It's got enormous flowers, which are scented of lemons. And for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to get the moth. It doesn't get the mullein moth because it's in a different section of the genus. And um, the trick with this is, is you grow it from seed and you might say, oh, that's easy. We'll just grow it from seed. But I find I collect the seed um, and the seed pods are incredibly hard and you have to smash them up with a hammer. So you break them up with a hammer and then you sow the seeds on the surface of your compost and then they come up like mustard and cress and then they all die because they're too close together and it's too wet or whatever. So I found the best thing to do was smash them up with a hammer and then throw them onto a piece of garden somewhere where they'll do their own thing and germinate. And the ones that are going to peg it will die. And then you just take the rest up and grow them on. And it just seemed to be, it, it, it's sort of an odd way of doing things. As I say, smashing the seed pods up with a hammer and throwing it into the garden. But that actually worked better than trying to sow it in a seed tray, which yeah. sounds totally mad, but that's just for that particular plant. This is one where I, where I learned, you know, that was the best way to do it. You know, other plants are completely different, but for that one, that's the best way to do it. And, uh, you know, you, you always start off being so precious and careful at the beginning with your new plant. And actually then you realize that no, it's probably just, just you know, <laughs> throw it away, <laughs> chuck it in the garden somewhere. I mean, Alan's got a big enough garden, he can get away with that. And so, um, <laughs> Uh, what else have I got on the table here? Um, I've got a plant here which is uh, Alan will see, Alan will know, he's probably bought one. Um, it's called Rhodiola fastigiata. So it's related to sedum. It's not actually a sedum, but it's related to sedum. And it has these very um, unusual woody trunks at the base. And the trunks are what survive through the winter. 
and then it has these green shoots that come up above with these lovely sort of red mahogany red flowers on the top and um it's one of those plants that i think in my career i've probably sold more of than any other single plant it's absolutely amazing so it's rhodiola fastigiata and i never see other nurseries selling it and i have no idea why uh, it's really really easy to propagate basically you just cut bits off so um cut bits off and pop them up and it could be that people just don't think you can cut bits off and pop them up do you know what i mean i mean you know yeah. sometimes propagation is far easier than you think it is you know so if, if you make it terribly complicated and you put it in a cutting frame and you do this and you do that and you 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 walk around in a circle three times to the left and three times to the right to try and propagate <laughs> but it's basically i just cut a piece off like that and then I cut the top off, then you end up with that, just a little stumpy little thing like that. And then you just pot it up and walk away. You have to water it, of course you do. And then this will root and this will be a new plant next year. So sometimes propagation can be terribly simple, but I never understand why I'm the only nursery selling this for 30 years. I have never seen it on somebody else's table and I sell loads of it. And I don't understand why no one else can propagate it. So you know the trick I did with the primrose where I cut it into pieces? I did that with this. I thought, why don't I do that with this and see what happens? So I cut it in half, lengthways, all the way down here. And then I cut that in half again. So I had four. Um, and then I thought, you know what? Why don't I just do it so that each piece has got one green shoot and one piece of trunk? And I did that and that worked. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just it's just ridiculously easy to propagate why is no one selling it I <laughs> why don't am understand. i not growing it that's what i want to know <laughs> well yeah you can grow you, you can have this piece and you can grow it in your garden yeah. yes um in your tiny little tiny little space that you've got yes <laughs> or maybe in the front you can put it in the front garden or something yeah yeah, yeah well it wants to be in the sun we're maximizing sure, space alan i'm sure you've had you've grown it you must have done Yes, I have. Yes, yes, I have. And did it persist um, or is it gone? Or It's gone. It was in the gravel in the front courtyard. And I'm afraid when we changed the front courtyard, sir, some things got left and some things didn't. And it was one of the things that's gone. I tell you what, Joe, um, after this little exercise, you can expect an order. <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. Um, right. So let's have a look at something else. This is something that's quite a bit rarer. So... A lot of us have got used to seeing fields of ground cover plants. So these are plants that, that are sown, they're, they're like a temporary lee, which the farmer then grows on his land, plows them in like a green manure. And one of those plants is Facelia, uh, Tanacetifolia, with a lovely purple thing. And it's now getting naturalized on road verges and everywhere. And it's an annual to about three feet high. And it's very, very beautiful. It's a beautiful purple, purpley blue flower as you see it everywhere, but it's only an annual. But of course, like everything else in life, every group of plants that has annuals also has a perennial. What we've got here is a perennial phacelia. So it's got the same kind of lovely uh, purple blue flowers. It's only about uh, 30 centimeters or a foot high. So it's not a very big plant. And uh, with me, I do it in sun or part shade and it seeds about, but it's the most beautiful purple flowers, but it's a full perennial. And, um, Again, you know, this is the sort of plant that we all could be growing and we're not growing. And it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, 
they took the winter outside and no one can tell you this winter was a, was an easy winter it's been an absolutely appalling winter very very cold and then the coldest april ever it's taken everything it's been given um it flowers for ages because if you look at the way a phacelia grows it grows and the, the, you can see it's hooked over here and that gradually unfurls a bit like a borage in various other parts this gradually unfurls um and so it flowers for months 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 it's a really good plant I, again i have no idea why no one's growing it. why am i the only person growing this and it's easy from seed so for if you wanted to go and buy some seed from somewhere i'm sure you could get some seed what's its second name jim right it's phacelia bolanderi for mr bolander so b-o-l-a-n-d-e-r-i-i-e-r-i bolanderi oh i love this i love it little nephophia pom-poms turning up joe's been replaced by a nephophia or a nephophia however we want to say it Kniphoff, if he, his name was Mr. And he was obviously, uh, Knip is um, Jewish. So KN is a Jewish uh, word. So he obviously originally came from Jutland or Jutland, or, which is Denmark. But his name was Knipoff. So if you're saying if you're in, in Germany, you have to say Knipoffia, not Nifofia. <laughs> why, why have I got this one? Uh, there's, 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 there's a charming old gentleman that comes to my garden every week that refuses the kit bit and just calls them floffiers. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so that, that, that particular plant is, is, is uh, Knipophia or Nifophia, however you want to say it, Atlanta. And this is one of the plants that I was given when I was six years old. And I have kept this plant going ever since I was six years old, you know, despite moving several times working all over this country, working in America, wherever I've been, I've kept this, this, this individual plant has kept going. It's the same stock that I had when I was six. I, Joe, I think that this is Nephophia Atlanta, I think is one of the three plants that I remember seeing in the gardens of neglected or empty yeah. deserted houses when I was a yeah. child. It, yeah. It's, become, it's yeah. become a classic cottage garden plant. And the, yep. the, the story is that it, it was named for the Hotel Atlanta, which I think is down somewhere down in Cornwall. But they always claimed they bought it from a nursery in Surrey. But the nursery, any nursery in Surrey uh, didn't, didn't have it. But it's, to me, it's, it's obviously a hybrid of Corlescent. There's an early yep. flowering Corlescent hybrid. And it is the most wonderful cottage garden plant. I mean, you see it absolutely everywhere. It's, it's really easy to grow. It's an absolutely reliable May flowering plant. It always flowers in May. May and it never and it never flowers in June but of course this year because it's been so cold you know it's doing its thing and it's now it's now flowering in now but you see as a as a as, a, as somebody who likes to hybridize things a late flowering plant like this that's been fooled by the season will give me late flowers that I could then perhaps cross onto something else that was flowering early that had been kept in the tunnel because it, normally this flowers so early you can't hybridize it with anything else but if you get a late random flower on it, sometimes by accident or also because of the season, then there's a possibility of doing some more, more hybridizing and some crossing. So, um, you know, that's something I've done in the past, but it didn't produce any great results. But anyway, I just wanted to say this was you know, my longest living plant. It's the one I've had, you know, for the whole of my career and I've still got it. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Do you have any plants from your childhood, Alan? Yes, I do. I have Granny Gray's peony, which is in no way is no in no way special. But I mean, it is a it's an old 
floppy single pink flowered peony. Um, and my grandmother, when when people were old enough to, or she felt that they were old and mature enough to have their own gardens, um, she actually dug up a piece of her peony and she gave it to everybody. So they took it with them. And I mean, that's one of the things about garden plants, you know, aunt so-and-so gave me this, uncle so-and-so gave me that, you know, grandma's peony and all the rest of it. Um, and Joe's Nifofia, I suppose, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, came, it came from my uh, grandparents. Yeah. Mm. You know, I was given it because they had a lot in their garden, as we said, it's a cottage garden plant. They had a lot, they gave me a piece and I kept it going. And, um, but yes, every plant has a memory. And every plant is from a person. And, you know, this is particularly true in the snowdrop world, but it is true for all of these plants as well. And, you know, you're, you're sort of treasuring the memory of the person. Every time you look at the plant, you think of that person. And so, you know, plants are people in that respect. And this is where, you know, somebody like me who has a lot of plants and, you know, you know, could grows a lot of stuff, you know, yes, again, everything is a memory. Now, I don't know whether you can see this one. This is one is coming slowly. Oh, that's here. Oh. Is that a linum? It's a linum. Yeah. And it's linum narbonense, and it's a variety called Heavenly Blue. Oh. So it's a variety, linum narbonense, Heavenly Blue. And it's a perennial, uh, semi shrubby linum, a really hot, dry, sunny positions. And um, there were at one time several different named varieties of this linum, and all of them have gone apart from this one. And I uh, got this. Um, as cuttings from, uh, I was at Rittle Agricultural College in the 1980s, and they had a big plant in the bed. I can tell, tell you who I was. I was the very annoying person who knew all the names in the college grounds. And um, the, all the, the, the other students who were doing, I wasn't doing amenity, I was doing commercial, but all the students who were doing amenity horticulture, one of their jobs was to learn all the plants around all the buildings. And I already knew them all because I was just annoying, as I say. So much so that actually even the lecturers got them wrong. And I'd be going out and I'd put the right label back on the right plant because the lecturers have got it wrong. <laughs> anyway, so Heavenly Blue, I've had Heavenly Blue uh, ever since then. And I've kept it going uh, through thick and thin. And I do sell it. Um, but I, again, I am really don't know who else has got that plant. You can grow it from seed, but they're not the same. So the seedlings are definitely different. They, they grow in a different way. They're taller. Uh, you know, they're not exactly the same. So I have got seedlings, but I'm, I'm not selling those. I'm just selling the original plant from cuttings. And it's not that easy to root from cuttings, but it does work quite well from cuttings. But it's a, you can just imagine Alan with a hundred of them, you know, planted out somewhere. <laughs> oh. He says, hopefully, I don't, I don't have a hundred, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but it, you know, this is, this is an example of, of, you know, one person keeping a plant going. You know, is the plant that was at Rittle, is that still alive? Probably not, because what they no. do at the colleges is they rip it all out and they start again. You know, new fashion will come in for a new style of gardening or they say that border's tired, rip it all out. But they don't actually understand what they have there and whether things need, I think that needs conserving. You know, I, I'm conserving it. Unfortunately, I can see now with the closure of many nurseries and a lot of people um, getting older and giving up, there's going to become a period when a lot of these plants are no longer available. Mm. And I think we're moving towards a time when a lot of plants, you know, will be, you know, just completely unavailable, mm. uh, which is, you know, for me, that's a tragedy. But this is where, again, I want to see if we can get younger people in to be growing these things. And, and it, it goes back to the kind of 
the importance of gardeners giving their friends, their gardening friends plants and, and spreading things around, whether it's, you know, seed, although obviously that they don't always come true, but um, seed and cuttings and the, the plants that set themselves in your garden and you end up with too many and particularly the rarer ones. That's the great thing about the gardening community um, is passing them around, keeping them alive. Yeah, keeping them alive by moving things around. Absolutely. Absolutely. How we do it. But, you know, we need more young people coming in to give plants too. Have you got, uh, have you got any more time? treasures off screen, Joe? Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> A very distinct uh, allium. It's allium, allium Schuberti, which is looking absolutely fantastic right now. It's the sort of thing, again, that um, I'm sure Alan grows. And um, it, it's, uh, it's just, uh, when you get a good plant of it, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, you know, you can do this. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's bang on right now. We have all been buying those from Holland. We've been buying the bowls from Holland, but whether we can continue to buy the bowls from Holland is a completely different story. So it may be that those things um, that we used to buy and grow on a regular basis and sell to all our customers over here are no longer available in the way that they used to be. And that's still got to be worked out. We're still in the process of... Um, trying to work out what it is and isn't available. And I'm already seeing the effect at plant fairs from those nurseries that used to regularly go over and buy things. They just pop over for the weekend and buy stuff and then pop up back again. So several people I can see already, their range is becoming completely depleted because they can't just pop over in the way that they used to. So, um, you know, the effect of that will take some years to work through because um, obviously with a, if you're doing shrubs, it will take you three or four year lead time to actually get the shrub up to a certain size but with something like this allium you know it could be that we can still get it but it could be, be all these things become a lot more expensive yeah uh, for somebody like me i can't grow that I, um what i mean is i ca i can't the, the time it takes for me to grow it from seed and mm. get a flowering plant is is longer than i've got the, the energy or strength to deal with which is why it's just easier to buy the bulb but anyway, we'll see what happens. I mean, it could be that everything you know goes up enormously, and we have to increase all our prices. But that's something we'll just have to deal with. It is one anyway, way I've so been justifying yeah. buying plants um, by telling myself they'll be more expensive next year, so I should just buy them all now. Yeah, I mean, there's one or two things that we used to buy on a regular basis, which I'm I'm now learning how to grow. So instead of buying them, I'm learning how to grow them. But the lead time for uh, for a shrub is obviously and the, for this thing because I mean this this must take you know four or five years. Uh, the lead time is far, far longer than it would be for other things. So the, the ones I'm obviously starting to grow myself are the ones that are easy. So I'm, I'm starting with those first. Mm. So again, we'll see a shift in what's available, I think, to the plants that are more easily available. And it could be that some, some nurseries over here will actually do incredibly well because uh, they weren't doing particularly well beforehand. Um, but now everybody wants their stuff because it's not so easy to get from abroad. It's almost as if we've become addicted to cheap stuff from abroad. And so, Alan, you must know not cut nursery that, that, um, that went out of business. You know, again, they yeah. wouldn't they wouldn't have gone out of business if they hadn't had the competition from Europe. No, that, that, that's quite true. And though, I mean, there's several nurseries that I know where they used to propagate almost everything themselves, um, and you know, they were wholesale. Well, not, not, not cuts, not cuts did, didn't it? Because Ivan yeah, Dickens, did. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ivan Dickens, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, you know. And incidentally, Ivan, um, I had some lovely plants from him. Um, <clears throat> the, what's it called? Hibiscus sinus syriacus, 
yeah. which, which you really don't see very many places at all. But I've got some lovely mm. plants for that, which I, I mean, it's one that you can prune hard because it's, although it's a shrub or a small tree, it flowers on its young wood, so you can keep it within bounds. And they're growing along the front of my house. And there's one that's particularly nice, which has white flowers with a brilliant red um, center to the flower. It's absolutely yeah, delicious. It um, but you know, that's one of the things that knot cuts grew, but they don't, of course they're now they're not there. They don't do it anymore. I mean, knot cuts, the garden center is still, still. Yeah, of um, course, of course, of course. That's an entire thing. Yeah, it's the wholesale nursery we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, let's look at some more plants. <laughs> I mean, what an array. We've had Phacelias, Linums, Wabascums, Alliums, lots of ums. Rhodiola. Rhodiola. So you're writing them down. I'm trying to claw them out yeah, of the brain. I, I think you did very well. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is Ornithogallum magnum. And this was one of those ones that we used to you know, buy in every year from Holland. And now I'm learning how to do it myself. And I find it's relatively straightforward. It's a very it's a hardy bulb, uh, very tall, beautiful white flowers, um, very easy to grow in good drainage. But it's, as I say, it's one of those things where I've had to make the shift to grow it myself from seed or from division and keep it going because um, you know it, it, it may not be available anymore. And then uh, luckily I found a friend who had lots of it in their garden, so that, that sped things up. So that's all of the gallon magnum, very, very pretty, uh, white flowered uh, bulb, you know, hardy, very easy to grow. Um, and I realize I've been saying it wrong my whole life. I'm, I'm an ornithogalum girl and I'm not sure I'll ever be able to change. It doesn't really, it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> It's I don't think I can relearn how to say that one. Well, I'm not, I, I don't know I'm saying it right, do I? <laughs> I just make my best guess. You know, so, so as long as we understand each other, that's the important thing. As long as you know what it means, you know what it means, don't you? What does it mean? What does it mean? I don't think I know what yeah. it means. Bird milk. <laughs> Ornithogallum oh. is bird milk. Ornithology, oh, um, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then magnum just means very big. Now you have to you have to understand what these things mean. Do we want to see more, or are we? Yes, yes, more. As a little beautiful little dianthus. Again, not enough people grow these, and uh, the, these are becoming uh, critically endangered. I think because most of the dianthus you see in garden centres are all raised by one nursery down in the southwest, and they're all hybrids of um, carnation and pink. But the old-fashioned garden pinks are actually becoming very rare. No one really sells them anymore. Um, and uh, I don't know whether people haven't got the patience, but all the right conditions. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, very beautiful old pinks like this, which just aren't being grown. I don't know, Alan, you don't really grow much at all in the way of pinks, do you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm gradually getting into them, actually, because they make, uh, they, they suit the, the soil and the climate in the sunk garden where they've got raised beds and walls to tumble over and things like that. Yeah. One, one that we have is was um, an early one, which was um, um, one of the bizarre dianthus. Yeah. Bizarre. Um, it's called Chumley Farron. I don't know whether you know yeah. it with the striped flowers. Um, I yeah, wish with I striped could, flowers, yeah. Yeah, I wish I could find more like that because that is, mm. inter it interests me to have that and to grow that. What was that dianthus you just showed us? Which variety? Uh, well, I've got this as um, Enid Burgoyne, but oh, it, you know, uh, whether it really is is another matter, but that's what I got it as. So, and it's a lovely red uh, dwarf dianthus. Yeah. Um, they are 
very, very free seeding and you get lots of different um, varieties. They mix up quite easily. So actually making sure that they're true is, is a totally different story. This, this is a case in point where um, somebody ought to have a national collection of these. And they used to, they used to be national collections of diamonds and there no longer is. And the, the, the problem with these plants is if, if no one keeps them going, they'll be gone. Yes. And um, I've, I've, I've gone in and out of lots of different groups of plants. But the one thing I do do absolutely religiously is photograph them. So even if I'm the last person with that particular plant, at least I have a photograph. And um, so my photo library of plants, hopefully, if it doesn't die on this computer, um, would, would be worth quite a lot because I, I could be the last person to photograph all sorts of unusual plants. You know, if I kill it, uh, if there's only one and I kill it, and this has happened, don't trust me, it does happen. Um, uh, you know, at least I photographed it before it went. That was the thing. And it's like a, a lot of things. People come to me and say, oh, I found this lovely thing in my garden. And I said, well, photograph it first. You know, before you do anything, before you try and propagate it, before you dig it up, before you do anything whatsoever, photo first. Prove that it existed first. And um, uh, Alan, I think you know the double nasturtiums. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was given one many years ago with variegated leaves. So it's double red <laughs> variegated leaves, which I killed. Um, but that's the sort of thing that they, they weren't fashionable then, but they are fashionable now. I mean, you know, Hermine Grassoff and, um, yeah. uh, you know, all of that lot, because uh, I know you like to plant them out or you have you have planted out lots. Yes, I've got, I always keep, keep them going from cuttings because they're very easy. There was a there was an exhibition at the Chelsea at the Westminster Halls uh, from the Glasnevin Botanic Garden uh, several years ago now, and on that stand, I don't know how I stopped my hand from wandering, but on that stand they had a cream double the double nasturtium, a cream wow. flower nasturtium. Cream, wow! I mean, they are they are perennial. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the trick to keeping them in the winter is dry, really dry. So they've got to not go below a certain temperature, but they like it really dry to the point where almost all the leaves die off and you just get the stems behind. And then once you get to the spring, you start watering and those shoots pop out when they're about this long, then you take them as cuttings. I presume that's what you've been doing, Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so you can really dry, really dry in the winter and then we uh, water them in the spring, and when they're about so long, they root like bilio. They're really easy to root. Until you know the plant, you would think that it's a wreck and it's dead at the end of the winter because the stems... Yeah, exactly, are, exactly. Yeah, the stems are almost yeah. in hibernation. All you've got to do is just water it, get some growth coming into it, and then chop it up. Mm. Again, this, it, I'm reiterating a point that Joe says, when the plant's growing freely, when it wants to grow, that's the time to propagate it. It's interesting we bring up that particular uh, plant because I remember that being a flomo uh, of Yester podcast, Alan Gray. That being a plant <laughs> yeah. you wanted to try and find, we haven't uh, tracked it down yet. But um, yeah. we're going to run out of time, so we better do some flomo. That plant that you're having fomo about that you really want to grow. And mine was inspired by a bit of social media. There is a wonderful Instagram account by Juliet Tomset who grows all kinds of lovely things, and she put up a photo of Hymenocallus sulfur queen. I think, are they the Peruvian daffodil, though they're not a daffodil at all? And, um, I think it's Ismini Festalis, isn't it? I, I don't know what the last name is, but yeah, I know Heimlich. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was a beautiful thing. And I thought, well, I haven't got much room, but maybe I could find a, a little corner to grow that next year. So that was one for the wish list. Um, Joe, what would you like to bring to the Flomo party? 
plant that I came up with was a plant that I've seen. It was it was a Chelsea plant of the year one year. Okay, so it was they have a little stand where they put up um, I don't know ten or twenty plants, and then people vote on which is the best plant. And this was a plant of the year in that year, and it was the most amazing blue verbascum, and it's called verbascum blue lagoon, and it was the most stunning blue, but it's proved almost impossible to grow. And uh, I think it's been kept alive by a microprop company. And I really would like to get hold of that to see if I can learn how to grow it and grow it on my own. Well, if anyone can, it's you. That sounds absolutely divine. I'm sure you'd like that, Alan. But what's your current FLOMO? Well, my current FLOMO is much more down to earth, I'm afraid. But I mean, it, it is to increase my, increase my collection of old fashioned, um, sometimes named, sometimes not unnamed, um, varieties of zonal pelargoniums. And I do like the zonal pelargoniums that, that grow long and lanky and are untidy. Um, I've got Paul Crumple, I've got Mr. Wren, I've got Frank Headley and, and probably lots more as well. Um, but I remember as a child when we used to go out, we used to go to Galston on sea quite often on a Sunday. And as we, when we were approaching Galston, there was a, a row of bungalows and this man who lived there, a man that lived there, had kind of a shop front on, on his, and he said geraniums for sale. Now, they weren't perennial geraniums, these were zonal pelagoniums. And I was collecting them as a child, and they cost me about one and sixpence each, and I used to beg my father to stop the car so I could go in and buy one. Um, and, you know, those old-fashioned zonal pelagoniums, they, they're not the squat, highly bred things of today, plants of today with flowers that are far too big and in every colour under the sun that look like a bowl of sick, to be quite honest. <laughs> These are just, they have, they have granny's refinement and that's what I want. Um, so more, more old fashioned varieties of zonal pelagoniums. Wonderful. Okay. So the person you need to talk to is Timothy Clark, who's got a very good collection of old zonal pelagoniums. Thank so you Timothy so much. Clark, Netherhall Manor, and he's been collecting for years. I think the, the, one of the problems with the modern ones is they die very badly. The flowers yeah. just get botrytis and die. So they die, whereas the older varieties die really quite nicely. And um, whereas yeah. the old, the, you know, the new ones just look rubbish. They get botrytis and that's it. But yeah, so try Timothy yeah. Clark. Okay. There we go. He's full of wonderful plants and great knowledge and great contacts. Joe, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for coming back. Will you return in a couple of months' time with some more wonderful seasonal plants? Hopefully so. A different <laughs> season. There'll be all sorts of different plants to look at. Well, thank you very much. And happy gardening, everybody. <laughs> happy gardening. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.